You are listening to the Compliance Conversations podcast by Healthicity. If you work in the healthcare industry, you know how crucial compliance is to your bottom line, your reputation, and the success of your organization as a whole. If this is your first time listening, welcome. A transcript of every Compliance Conversations episode can be found at www.healthicity.com resources, along with a ton of other thought leadership materials. You can add us to your RSS feed and iTunes, or follow us on Twitter and Facebook. Now, let's get on with the show. Welcome, everybody, to another episode of Compliance Conversations. I am CJ Wolf with Healthicity, and I'm excited to welcome our guest, Ali Aga, on the on the line. Welcome, Ali. Uh, hi, thank you, CJ. Uh, happy to be here. I'm so grateful that you made some time. He's got everyone, all my listeners, Ali's got some great information on a topic that I had not really known much about. So I'm excited to talk to Ali about it. It's uh, software as a medical device. So I, most of my listeners know I was a chief compliance officer for a medical device company, uh, but we were making, you know, things that go into patients and that sort of thing. And I hadn't heard much about software as a medical device and Ali knows all about it. Uh, Ali, before we kind of jump into that topic though, we always want our guests to share a little bit about themselves. You know, how did you get to do what you're doing? What are you doing? You know, share whatever you feel comfortable sharing. Sure. Yeah. So, so basically like uh, I'm um, I started out doing um, systems engineering at Motorola as a software engineer. Um, uh, soon after that, that was around uh, the 2005, uh, 2007 timeframe. And then soon after that, I transitioned to translational science research at the University of Illinois, Chicago, uh, Center of, uh, for Magne- Magnetic Resonance Research, where we worked on advanced algorithms that were, act- you know, that were active areas of research in software as a medical device space. Right. Uh, and, you know, as the technology landscape evolved to include smartphones, mobile data collection systems, you know, like I basically developed an expertise uh, in uh, mobile technologies. This was back around the 2010s. Um, okay. So while working at the University of Chicago, NORC at the University of Chicago, I proposed and developed a mobile application that the way that the, that changed the way uh, that they do data collection in the field. Okay. Um, so, you know, um, most recently, I also worked at Matter, you know, um, um, actually a software consulting company uh, called Orthogonal at Matter, which is like a medical device um, okay. kind of like in- incubator in okay. Chicagoland area. Um, and, you know, my clients included Google and Quidel. Um, those were my most notable clients. And okay. after that, I just really got interested, like, you know, uh, in software as a medical device space, because it had a real good mix of hard science and also like, um, you know, it had this like um, regulatory framework that kind of like mandated like systems engineering approach. So that was exactly. really interesting to me. So, you know, I really got into this field following that uh, last job. So. Since then, like, um, you know, like I've just been working on in this particular area and I've, you know, like uh, I went um, and started my own company, Flowbit. Uh, okay. Now I work and um, work on projects such as those. Sweet. Well, that's exciting. And I know you you have a YouTube channel. We'll, we'll put this in the show notes. Sure. Um, and you've got some videos going on up there uh, with Flowbit. And that's F-L-O-W-B-I-T. Um, and, uh, so we'll, we'll share that a little bit so people can, can find those types of things. 
why don't we jump into this topic and and you can at least just start uh, at ground zero for people like me, our yeah. listeners. What yeah. is the concept of software as a medical device? Like, what is that? No, it's a very interesting concept. And to really understand what software as a medical device really is, you first got to understand what a medical device is, right? So, right. Um, so a medical device is a very legal term, you know, and it's laid out in the Food and Drug and Cosmetic Act, uh, right. so basically in the Code of Federal Regulations, and it's enforced by the US FDA. Right. But for your audience, to put it simply, I would say that a medical device is something that helps patients and providers monitor, diagnose, treat, or otherwise assist or mitigate a specific disease or condition, you know, and right. it should do that primarily without the use of like chemical action, like say, for example, in drugs. Exactly. Um, now, software as a medical device is basically uh, like accomplishing those specific tasks that I mentioned, but it needs to do that only through software and mm. and it excludes hardware like the definition oh. is hardware so hardware is not considered as part of the software as, as a medical device i see so like hardware might be like if i'm wearing um a heart monitor that's the hardware yeah 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 gotcha. no, and i'm glad you mentioned a heart um monitor for example i'll give you a specific example great so Apple's got this uh, watch, right? The Apple watch, everybody wears it. Right. In that Apple watch runs software, runs a lot of software. Right? Now, Apple specifically has this one feature, like software feature called Apple Irregular Rhythm Notification Feature, right? It oh, runs okay. on the Apple watch. It is one of the software as a medical device applications that Apple has registered with the US FDA. Oh. And, um, and it's part of the Apple Health app, right? So- um, Okay. Now, it's important to note, Apple Health app as a whole is not software as a medical device. Okay, just that feature. Just that feature, exactly. And the Apple Watch hardware, so the Apple Watch itself, not a software as a medical device. The entire okay. OS, watch OS, not uh, software as a medical device, just that feature. Okay. And that small slice of software is registered with the US FDA, you know, like, okay. and they say just like, just this feature in, in the submission. Um, and basically how it works, it gets the data from the Apple Watch sensors, processes using proprietary AI-enabled algorithms. Um, that's also mentioned in, in the submission. Okay. Decides if there's a certain pattern present uh, or not. So, for example, if it detects an irregular heartbeat. Um, and then accordingly, we'll notify you uh, on your phone or or, or all also on your Apple watch. Right. Um, and, you know, it'll tell you to like, um, you know, like uh, that, it, you know, it'll tell you that you have AFib or, you know, like a, like a right. irregular heartbeat. Now it's important to also note that's not officially a medical diagnosis. So Apple will tell you, this is not officially a medical diagnosis. It has just detected a uh, irregular right. heartbeat and it'll encourage yeah. you to go talk to your primary care provider. So, gotcha. so that is one example of software as a medical device. I see. Is the is the hardware of the watch also have to be approved though, or can you just have software as a medical device without some other feature? It seems like you couldn't, but I I don't know. So it's very interesting. So you know, one important thing about medical devices is that you know you have to like 
validate the environment that they're working on, you know, yeah. like, or they're working in. So for example, if I have a heart valve and it's working on one side of my heart and I move it to another side of my heart, I have to add, like I have to validate and verify that it works in that spot too. Right. Exactly. Um, so, so for same with software, however, in this case, yeah, no, the software is not, you know, the watch is not considered part, but you still have to um, verify and validate that your, um, you know, that that the watch, uh, sorry, so so the irregular rhythm notification in this case was working correctly on uh, um, on, on the watch, and there were I actually see. some clinical trials. Actually, there were some sponsored clinical trials. If you go look up uh, clinicaltrials.gov, I'm sure you'll find something that is uh, that there was a study sponsored by Apple. You know, like yeah. they, they verified and validated it, this effectiveness. It's actually a class two. Uh, risk medical device. Gotcha. That's fascinating. So tell us a little bit about how uh, software as a medical device, like its role in healthcare industry over time. What's that been? Yeah, like? no, it, it's actually really interesting. Um, you know, I'll just basically go in the chronological order here, but uh, the earliest applications of uh, software as a medical device were these computer aided detection systems. Uh, and uh, it was basically just software using X-ray data, CT scan data, MRI scans, and it went as far as back as the 1970s. Wow. Yeah, yeah, it was really far back. And incidentally, like my first, um, you know, my first um, exposure to this industry was in this space back at UIC, um, where I was working on Center of Magnetic Residence Research. So okay. it was quite established. Um, now, what happened here was also like very interesting. Like, so like software as medical de uh, device applications got boosted by deep technologies. For example, like microchips became more powerful. Mm -hmm. uh, cloud computing became more affordable and accessible to everybody, right? right. Um, now data processing, you know, was uh, um, happened at a very large scale. You know, there were these proprietary algorithms, in, exactly. you know, like in AI and ML that were developed, like that could do like these chest ray, x-ray and uh, analysis and whatnot. So, um, you know, that was one, you know, factor and then there was this also like this mobile era like this connect these connected devices there were these smartphones that emerged smart watches wearables fitness tractors all of exactly. them were backed with sensors so that allowed for you know like lots of data collection gotcha. um then also like um la electronic health records so in the mid-2000s if you know like um ehrs were like less than 10 percent uh uh, at an adoption rate of yet less than 10% by U.S. hospitals. Right. Now, like, I, I don't know if you know, but now it's close to over like 90% of U.S. hospitals. So you exactly. have like these electronic medical records, uh, you know, that are, uh, that are like ubiquitous in U.S. hospitals and also like other facilities. For example, if you go to a doctor, most doctors nowadays are at their computer, right? Like typing in these electronic medical records and yep. for most appointments. So you also had like, so this digitization of your health data, you know, also like played a big role. So you had this convergence like of internet, computing power increasing, cloud computing, big data, EHR adoption, mobile era, all this kind of coming together. Uh, and you basically like, 
you know, like gave a boost to like software as a medical device. Nowadays, you have digital health mobile apps. Um, some of them fall into this very special category. It's called medical mobile apps. It's um, and this category is uh, kind of recognized by the US FDA. Then okay. you also have this like clinical decision support software, you know, in vitro diagnostic, uh, in vitro diagnostics, glucose monitoring systems, digital right. diagnostics, all those, right? Um, so the computer-aided detection systems are part of these and they have been along and been most successful. Also a new category that's playing a bigger and bigger role is like these algorithms, AI and machine learning, you know? Yes. Well, and I wanted to ask you about that because now all the rage and talk is, you know, AI and chat GPT and all these other things, right? I mean, how does that play into all of this? Yeah, no. So AI um, is actually making a really big impact on digital health and software as a medical device. Um, So, so, you know, like there are three big categories, like there are AI enabled medical devices. There's also okay. like this genomic sequencing. And then there's this like processing of large amounts of EHR data. Um, so, so for AI enabled medical devices, like Apple's, like I've already mentioned, like the, the one from Apple, right? The right. Apple Watch, uh, the irregular rhythm notification feature that detects AFib. Uh, then, right. you know, as of October, 2022, uh, the US FDA posted a long list of AI-enabled medical devices. There were about 522 devices that were listed. Wow. Yeah, there were quite a few. And um, a vast majority of them were for radiology. Like sure. radiology was the biggest category. It had, it had 392 okay. uh, devices that were enabled by AI. And okay. the second highest was the ca- cardiovascular medical device category. And it was about mm-hmm. 50 plus, the second okay. highest. Um, yeah. And so, so those were like the AI enabled medical devices. And then there's like this genomic sequencing, you know, like precision FDA is an FDA community, community, the uh, community platform for next generation sequencing assay evaluation, and okay. they do regulatory science exploration. So they held many competitions, um, including Truth Challenge back in 2016 and then in 2020, uh, where participants tested technologies for DNA variant calling. Yes, uh, some of the entries using machine learning and um, AI had crazy outstanding scores, like 99.96 accuracy, 99.97 accuracy, like wow. nearly perfect, you know? Yeah. yeah. And it just showed the importance of AI and genomic sequencing, you know, like it's just playing a bigger role there. Um, then obviously like with like these large sets of EHR data now available. Exactly. Now you can think of, uh, you know, like how hard it would be for like humans to like, write rules and process this, but AI can do this much more effectively where it can go through large sets of electronic health records. It can look at large number of possible health conditions. It can look at all your symptoms, right? you know, and you can imagine an AI triage room, emergency room situation where it's time sensitive, you have access to limited resources. Something like an AI enabled system could help you make critical decisions uh, really fast, really quickly, you know? Right. It's um, the, process, the processing power. Yeah. Yeah. No, it, it's really fast. AI actually, you know, I don't know if you've worked with like some 
AI-enabled models, but they're really fast. They're, they're incredibly fast. Um, there's an interesting story here too, uh, you know, um, uh, you know, uh, of an um, AI-enabled uh, system. So, <clears throat> you know, before you, uh, you know, before like you had ChatGPT, like large language models, like right. you know, which were text-based, prompt-based, right? Like there was right. another prompt-based system, um, and it was Internist One. It was in the 1980s. Uh, it was developed. It was an AI program created by a team of researchers um, based out of University of Pittsburgh. It helped with the medical diagnosis, you know, yeah. and uh, specifically, um, it was um, it was supposed to mimic an internist, a doctor who specializes in internal medicine, right? Right. It, it would ask you questions about the patient, you know, like say, what's the patient's name, age, gender, you know, uh, what kind of conditions, and then it would. Uh, you know, what kind of symptoms there are, such, such, so on and so forth. And then it would help with the diagnosis, you know. Uh, it took 15 years to build. It was a massive effort, you know, but it failed. Gotcha. It failed not because it was not inaccurate, but it failed because, you know, it didn't have a really fluid clinical workflow. There was a lot of manual entry of data. Gotcha. And it also not it was not also like general generalizable to other locations. For example, like their data set did not learn from new 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 cases. So if okay. it was developed in Pittsburgh or like the Midwest or wherever, like you couldn't take it to Japan and it wouldn't work gotcha. there. The data was uh, was static. Gotcha. Um, but the medical expert system was groundbreaking. You know, it was groundbreaking AI, and it, it was ahead of its time. You know. Obviously, it suffered from disadvantages like not having uh, this, these large, large sets of electronic health records. You know, there was no voice recognition. There was no right. natural language processing. Machine learning was not applied in this case, you know. Right. Um, but, you know, like with models like ChatGPT, you know, on the horizon, like I'm, I'm pretty sure like there are like innovators out there in this, this space that are looking at this problem again and, you know, like making like yeah. some good progress now. Yeah, I, I bet. You know, this is all fascinating. Let's take a quick break and then we're going to come back and, and talk some more. This is uh, such an exciting topic. So sure. hang in there with us, folks. We'll be right back. If you're listening to this podcast, chances are you need content to help advance your career in compliance. You need great information and CEUs to keep your certifications. We're here to help. Healthicity offers webinars on tons of topics designed to inform and educate while keeping it interesting. And most of our webinars will earn you 1.2 CEUs. We know you're busy. That's why our webinars work with your schedule. You can attend live or watch on demand. Grab a cup of coffee, a snack, whatever you need. Settle in and check out all our webinars at healthicity.com slash resources. Now let's hear the rest of this episode of Compliance Conversations. Welcome back, everybody, from our break. Uh, we're here with uh, Ali telling us all about software as a medical device. And it's just, it's fascinating. Um, and in the first part, we've, we've kind of, Ali has given us kind of a background, uh, kind of an evolution of it and kind of where it is today a little bit. And uh, maybe Ali, we can uh, shift directions a little bit and talk a little bit about the regulatory aspect sure. of some of these things. I mean, you mentioned the FDA at the beginning. Uh, tell us a little bit more about how the regulatory uh you know, agencies uh, have a, a part to play in this. 
Yeah, no. So, so there are quite a few regulatory agencies, you know, like, um, but the one that's most important uh, is the U.S. FDA. Um, right. There's, you know, others, other agencies also, you know, are kind of like concerned here. Like, for example, FCC, you know, if you, you're dealing with IoT type stuff, like, so for, yep. for that, like FCC needs to ensure um, you know, you're using the right bandwidth and you're not interfering with other medical devices using, you know, and the radiation levels are kind right. of like in, with an acceptable range. But for, for, yeah, but for software, right? For software, I think US FDA like is important. <clears throat> and yes. they have a lot of like regulatory guidance and best practices on this. Um, now, US FDA's approach to software as a medical device is very risk-based. You know, it's, it's in general for medical devices, it's very risk-based. Sure. So, so here, different classes of risk are there. Like, so first, and it's very quite simple. Like the model's quite simple. Class one is the lowest risk. Class two is moderate risk. And class three, as you might have guessed, is the highest risk. Mm-hmm. And based on these three different types of uh, class of risks, you uh, different regulatory controls apply. Okay. So for example, class one, which is low risk, an example of that would be a patient bed monitor. You can imagine why that's like a low risk device. Sure. Um, Here's something like general controls will apply. So what that means is that it would pertain to like the general controls would like mean uh, you would do device registration and listing. Okay. You have some design history records and reports, and you'd follow some good manufacturing practices. You know, okay. these are just a few, that, you know, general controls. A class two would be moderate risk. Um, and an example of this is Apple's uh, irregular rhythm notification feature. Right. Um, because it's, it's it has moderate risk because you can imagine like AFib is a serious condition, right? So right. class two. Right. So here you had the general controls that we discussed from the previous class. On top of that, you layer on an additional um, um, regulatory control, you know, like which is called special controls. Okay. In in special controls category, you have to have like performance standards. You have to do post-market surveillance. You have to have pre-data requirements and you have to have labeling. And then there are some other controls as well. And then finally, you got this class three, which is the highest risk. Exactly. Uh, an example of that would be a wearable automated external defibrillator. Sure. Uh, right. So it's like, a, uh, you know, like you could basically it's like it's a life sustaining or, you know, if it doesn't work right, like yeah. this could be life threatening. Right. Exactly. Yeah. So you've got like general controls that we discussed from the class one. On top of that, you add this really strict, stringent uh, pre-market authorization controls on top of that. And um, PMA involves a lot of work. So you have to do like post-approval studies. So okay. even after you're approved, you have to continue con- to study the performance of your device. You have to also like do periodic reporting, you know. Right. Um, if you, so as, so you, even if you change your company name, you know, which has no impact on performance, you have to file an amendment, 
um, you know, if the device is, you know, being used in a new env environment and it has an impact to performance, you have to do a supplement, you know? Okay. So these are the kinds of regulatory controls that you have to follow. Um, now, it's important for developers to understand this because this will determine your FDA's regulatory pathway going forward. Okay. And and is that why um, you started Flowbit to kind of help with that? Or what? how does Flowbit help? Yeah, no. So Flowbit, um, so Flowbit actually, um, because we are not the device manufacturer, we are not allowed to file with the FDA. The okay. device manufacturer, the innovator, you know, who produces the whole system needs to right. file with the FDA, right? So we only help with the software, but we can help you anticipate regulatory controls by performing risk analysis, right? Uh, um, you know, we will build software under design controls. We do this in a quality controlled manner. It's okay. a Dell documented process so that you can prove to regulators that your prog product has been developed under adequate design controls. You know, and we also provide um, documentation supporting regulatory compliance, you know, like things like your software development plans need to be there. So okay. if you're developing software as a medical device, you also have to have a technical ar architecture documentation. You need to have a quality plan, which includes your uh, verification and validation protocols. You need to have um, also some system integration planning. All these documentation needs are dictated by your regulatory controls that apply to your device. And that's that's determined by your risk levels. Okay. Do, do um, and you may have alluded to this already, but because you talked about the, you know, the external defibrillator, right? Um, right. There's, a, there's a hardware component, but then there's the software component. Are those both filed together or are those separate filings or? It, or is that not even an accurate yeah, no, question? <laughs> no, no, that, that's a good question. Yeah, no, I have seen filings where they're both lumped together. Like it'll say like, oh, this works in tandem with our such and such, you know? I see. So, so there are like, and US FDA does have a medical device database. So you can look like your specific product category, you know? Or you could say like, oh, this is my software. Oh, this is my software intensive system. And okay. as part of that, whole system. This is the hardware that works in tandem with my software. And this is my application. So it could be part of the whole system and you can have different classes for all of these subsystems. Um, yeah. No, so I've seen both. Like sometimes okay. you can file together and sometimes you do it individually. Okay. Well, that makes sense. Cause one thing I was thinking about, you know, all these people with sleep apnea and I, they use their CPAP machines and I've heard of some, you know, trials in the last few years and i think they've been approved now where you can do like these uh implant stimulators where um you know they Im they implant a, a, a electro stimulator so that it'll stimulate the neck muscles so when you know when when they relax and that's what causes the snoring and the obstruction um, oh, wow. the, the little shock so I, i'm curious like would that kind of device have does it have software in it you can tell i'm not a techie um i mean or is it do you know what I mean? Like, where does it stop from like being a sensor and where does, when does it become software as a medical device versus just the device? Yeah. Yeah. So, so yeah, no, the software basically has to make a medical device claim, right? For example, if I were to have like in that sleep apnea device, right. If right. I were to like, if the hardware is just collecting some vitals, like some information, right. Okay. Uh, 
you, it would not really be, you know, considered software as a medical device. But for example, if it did some processing with that data, it did some ah, like, gotcha. uh, like uh, there was an algorithm that looked at the pattern of data and then ah. told you like, you know, we need to like, um, you know, shock like shock the, you know, like the user, <laughs> yeah. you know, like I gotcha. in that case, it sounds like it's treatment, right? So, ah, gotcha. um, you know, like, uh, yeah, that would be software as a medical device. Now, I specifically am not aware of um, any specific uh, sleep apnea device, but I, okay. you're right, 100%. I was looking at the other day, I was looking at some clinical trials and, and I did see a lot of these sleep apnea devices and okay. they probably are also listed in the US FDA website. Gotcha. Um, and so you could get specific information regarding, you know, what is classified software as a medical device and which pro product category this falls under. Um, so, but yeah, no, you know, like when, when the algorithm is doing a medical function, like it I, would that be makes considered, sense. Yeah. Yeah. That makes, so do you have any other examples of like successful applications of software as a medical device in the clinical, um, practice? Oh, or oh yeah, no, there have been many. So like we discussed like, um, you know, cl clinical, um, decision support software and yes. clinical aided detection systems, you know, there are also okay. like a lot of variables, uh, monitoring apps. Um, there's also like continuous glucose monitoring devices, which have been uh, incorporated into clinical practice now. So you probably see a lot of ads for these glucose monitoring devices, right? Okay. Um, there's also like digital therapeutic apps. So Endeavor RX was the first ever video game used to treat ADHD. Uh, oh. As of June 50, 2020, FDA permitted marketing of the first game-based digital therapeutic. Wow. And it was basically to improve attention function in children with sure. ADHD. Uh, now, what was interesting about this, uh, clinical trials showed it had longer lasting effects when compared to drug-based treatments. Ah, uh, that is fascinating. Yeah, yeah. I, like I, it. I love that. <laughs> uh, and I, I love what you're talking about, just like with the electronic health record and all the data many years ago, um, yeah. I was involved in a project where there were going to be, there was a massive influx of people into a geographic region and the public health department was trying to monitor. Um, so like they wanted to predict if there was a, 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 a outbreak, an infectious oh, outbreak going to happen. So they wanted to monitor all the hospitals in this region for chief complaints um, that would make, someone suspicious of it and then they would look to see if it's spreading and that sort of thing i don't know if it, i don't think that ever came of anything but i'm just thinking with when you were talking about all the data that's in in uh health records if there were some way in the future and maybe this is a future state kind of question if all of that could be connected somehow you wonder if like at a public health level if you could you know identify hot spots in certain parts of the country and you know what i mean um yeah, no, actually, it's it's very, it's actually being done already. Like there's there is flu forecasting, for example. Okay. Yeah. So I think that's what you were alluding towards, right? Right. Yeah. yeah. The the example I was using was it was actually the Olympics was coming oh. to a certain geographic. Oh, region. I see. And the 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 health departments, you know, is an, expecting an influx of people from all over the world, and so they were thinking, okay, what, how can we use data 
just to kind of keep people healthy because you're getting this mix of all these populations from all, all over the world. What if somebody's oh, yeah. carrying something, that kind of thing. So, but my guess is you'd have to have software as a medical device doing that kind of analysis or yeah, is that? Yeah, no, that sounds right. Yeah. Yeah. I think that would, that would be one of the things that you could use software for. Yeah, for sure. That's, That's so an cool. Interesting use case. Yeah. Well, tell me, so we're getting kind of close to our, the end of our time. And I know I probably didn't ask you all the things I wanted to ask you, but you know, in the last couple of minutes, is there anything that you would advise, like maybe best practices in the field, companies that want to get into this or, or anything else that I didn't ask that you'd like to highlight? Yeah, no. So for, for best practices, right. So software as a medical device has a really long list of best practices and standards. Um, yeah, no, and you can look at FDA's website to get get a feel for you know like what are all the best back, best uh, practices in this space. Uh, from my experience with clients, there are some that are overlooked that I have talked about most recently, and these include in-app analytics, automated testing, interoperability, and I can give you some details around this. So, mm-hmm. so for in-app analytics, right? So this has like widespread adoption in e-commerce, marketing, and social media. And it's for some reason, it's not as popular in healthcare applications, maybe because like, you know, biomedical engineers don't have that in their background, you know? But what it does, it it, it helps help developers keep track of, you know, how many users are coming onto the system, what screens are they looking at, uh, you know, what which functions are you being utilized most, which functions are being underutilized, okay. what problems and errors were encountered using your software, you know? And yeah. um, now if you gather such analytical information, um, you know, uh, you have to do it in a HIPAA compliant manner. That's right. that's a given, of course. You know, we have to follow regulatory compliance. Our listeners uh, will like to hear that because they're compliance <laughs> yeah, officers. <for> sure. <laughs> But however, you know, not using in-app analytics altogether is a big mistake. So it leaves you at a big disadvantage. You, you need to know how well your system is performing, you know, like it, yes. helps, it can help you in the post-market surveillance too. So, yes. uh, that, so that's one important thing that you need to be considering as a best practice. Another thing is like here, this, this is quite interesting, right? So automated testing. So for example, okay. iOS is currently supporting 23 models, right? Like phone models, it sounds like a lot, but it's actually, you know, those are the iPhone models that are available out there. Okay. Uh, Now imagine like you develop a software medical function, you know, like you just, uh, that, and now you have to test this critical medical function on all 23 devices because, you know, Uh, you have to validate them on these 23 devices. And now uh, CJ, imagine how many Android phone models are there? Right. I don't know. <laughs> you know. So Android is running right now on 24,000 distinct phone models. Oh, my goodness. So, you know, like it just becomes very, imp- even if you were to like cut down the number of, you know, devices your uh, software is compatible with, but you still are left with a large number of um, devices, phone models to test your software as a medical device to run on, right? Exactly. So, so y- you need to have an automated testing strategy here, you know, okay. and then what happens here is like, you know, innovators understand this, but sometimes like either they don't start at the right time do- doing this or they start too late or they just don't, don't know, they don't have the expertise to design it well, you know, so. Right. 
So this kind of like falls short. Last but not least is the interoperability piece. So besides at-home patients, your medical advisor users could be like an outpatient facility or clinic. You know, they could right. also be a hospital network. It could be a medical lab. It could also be a research facility or academic institution. Now, what's in, uh, what's important about these type of users is like they work in offices or organizations that have large IT departments. Yes. And those IT departments have ISO standards, cybersecurity standards, uh, you know, privacy uh, standards, you know. Exactly. All these practices need to be, you know, like kept in mind, but also like there's there needs to be like a data interoperability uh, focus as well. So your yeah. data that you're collecting needs to be interoperable with their data systems, right? Okay. Um, so that is another thing that I've noticed like innovators will like think about last, you know, when they get yes. to their client and they talk to the client's needs and then they realize, oh, actually we need this one additional thing, you know? So, yeah. you know, if you think about interoperability upfront, they'll save you some time down the line. Yeah, that's fascinating. Uh, and obviously you have experience, you know, where people are making missteps and, and, and you, where you can kind of give them some advice. This is really great, Ali. Uh, any, anything else before we, we kind of close any last minute thoughts or. No, thank you. No, I really enjoyed the conversation. Uh, I really love talking about this. So thanks for giving me a chance. Absolutely. And we, your passion comes through clearly. I love it. Um, and for those who are listening, we're going to include in the show notes, uh, some links, uh, some information, if you want to reach out to Ali, um, and I already mentioned his YouTube channel and those sorts of things. So, uh, there's lots of ways to learn more from him and, and from those he's working with. Um, and we just, as always, we want to thank our listeners. Uh, if you like these episodes, please, you know, hit the like button, um, share it with, with colleagues, uh, get the word out. And, uh, and I always welcome other ideas. If you know people who, who you think would be good guests, please reach out to us. Um, and uh, until our next episode, have a great day, everyone. Compliance Conversations is sponsored by Healthicity. Healthicity designs software and services that simplify compliance and auditing challenges that reduce your risk and save you money. Where others see complexity, we see simplicity. For more information, visit healthcity.com.